Welcome to the Tone That Made Us podcast. Each week, Dan Cav and I delve into the guitar history of some of our favorite artists. Today's guest is a New York hardcore icon, a writer and publisher as well. He transformed punk rock hardcore guitar into an aggressive art form, eventually bringing in metal roots into a short hair format. Starting in bands like the Young Republicans, Violent Children, moving on to form Youth of Today, Judge, Project X, eventually joining bands like Gorilla Biscuits, Bold, and Shelter, and apparently passing on forming Rage Against the Machine with Zach De La Roca, which we're going to have to dive into. Um, he redefined a new genre of melody and hardcore. Known as Purcell to most as Slam to the Few, the big brother I never had. John Purcelli. What an introduction. You got a great podcast podcast voice, my friend. It does, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, now that I fixed the audio and got rid of all the uh, the echoey the echoey high-end microphones that I was using and just went with something a little simpler. Yeah, you better I, have you better have good tone on the audio with the with the tone podcast. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying. It's not our tone that was good. That's why we have to interview people <laughs> like you. <laughs> That's right. So starting this off the way we start all of them off. Um, we've all heard the story of like the first time someone saw Kiss, like, wow, I got to do that. But when was the first time you saw a musical instrument that made you, that inspired you to want to pick it up and start playing? Wow. That's a good question. That is a good question. You know, it was probably, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Kiss because I saw Kiss when I was like 10 years old. And I looked at Ace Fraley with his Les Paul and I was like, that is exactly what I want to do with my life. <laughs> you know, so Kiss, they had a huge impact on me. Really, you know, the first time, the first time that um, I saw instruments and i saw like um a garage you know filled with like amps and drum sets and stuff like that i had a cousin i had a, i had two cousins you know my father's sisters kids they had a band and actually when they were when they were little they were in uh they were in like a kids band like sort of like a pop band and they had us. They had a. They had a hit single. Oh no, kidding! They weren't like I forget what they were called. They were, it was something like the tidal waves, but it wasn't the tidal waves. But it was something like that. It was kind of surfy sounding. Mm. And um, their claim to fame was they were actually on that show Wonderama. Do you remember that show? Oh in the yeah, 70s? of course. Yeah, yeah there was, was a musical Wonderama Live. Yeah, they were uh, they were one of the musical guests on Wonderama, and I was just like, wow, my cousin's on Wonderama. This is like big time. <laughs> Um, so I, you know, and then when they became, they were older than me, you know, they were probably like, you know, it was my dad's older sister. So they were probably like a good 10 years older than me or eight years older than me or something like that. And when I was a little kid, sometimes we would go over to my aunt's house. And by this time, those two brothers were in like a full on rock band. And I remember going there and there, and the, um, the basement, their father was really into like model trains mm. and it was super cool like the whole base the whole garage i guess it was a basement it wasn't a garage 
the whole basement has it's like this big track that goes around the basement with these model trains and there's forests and tunnels that the trains go through and everything it was absolutely amazing you know when you're like a little kid you go you see this like crazy train set you're like whoa but that was around the room and then in the middle of the room it was like amps and drum sets and i mean these dudes were like rockers they had like huge amp peg you know bass amps and i forget what kind of you know amps they had but like you know full stacks um and i remember walking down there it's just being so surreal you see this kind of train set that was really cool but then like you look in the middle and you just see like there's something so stunning no, there's no, they're not there practicing, but you just see these huge amps, like these walls of like power. And I was just like, whoa, I was in, I was in awe of it, you know? Yeah, of course. And uh, I remember they used to practice. And then my aunt used to say, oh, don't stay down there. It's too loud for you. You know, cause I was like a little kid, but I could hear him. And it was just, it was absolutely blaring. And that was sort of the first taste I got of, you know, garage rock you could say or basement rock and i was super really intrigued but you know that was probably the first time that i fell in love with the idea of being in a band or or at least it kind of planted that seed like this is cool you know what i mean um interestingly enough um the younger of those two brothers uh, his name was Louis Biancanello, Louis J. Biancanello. He went on to become a famous music producer. Oh, no he, shit. He produced, um, yeah, he lives in Northern California. He produced like um, uh, Whitney Houston. Uh, he did. He worked with Aretha Franklin. He produced a bunch of stuff for Aretha Franklin. Um, Celine Dion. Uh, God, oh. I'm forgetting a lot, but you know, he, he, Elton John, he produced wow. a song for Elton John and, you know, he was really, but his, his, his big break was, um, he wrote and produced that Jessica Simpson breakout record. Remember she had all those hits yeah, on course. it. Oh, wow. She was nobody. And the record label just hired him and they said, you know, cause he was a songwriter. And so we got this girl, she's really pretty. She can barely sing. Write her a bunch of songs and, and record her. You know, he he had his own studio and everything, and, and you know he was he was becoming like this up and coming, you know, engineer and producer. And he did that record for her, and he made like you know you can imagine she had like you know four or five hits from that record. So yeah, having he, points he, on that record would be oh uh, yeah. He instantly, he instantly became a millionaire, and he I never saw it, but he built a studio like he bought a bunch of land in a mountain. And he built a studio in the mountain. It almost looks like a cave or something, I guess. I've, n- I've never been there, but supposedly it's really cool. That's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> and then he um, he started a songwriting company with the singer for Boys to Men. And uh, his, songwriting, uh, his songwriting company, I remember because my grandmother had died and I saw him at, I saw him at uh, and my grandmother's funeral and it was it, it was really cool because he shows up in like a porsche and you know he's got like this super cool black suit on black sun like he just rolls in like he's somebody like a special yeah. yeah and so i was talking about i was talking to him he's telling me he's producing all these records and you know he did jessica simpson and then he said i'm starting a songwriting company with the singer for boys to men and they were called the runaways 
Like that was the name of his songwriting company. And um, no confusion there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> and they wrote, um, they wrote, I believe they wrote a bunch of songs for Kelly Clarkston. And I believe they produced and engineered the whole record. And he wrote like three or four of her hit songs that were on that big record she had. Wow. So he made, he made a lot of money from that too. I so. wonder if he's the one that ripped off that yeah, yeah, yeah's part that she used in Since You've Been Gone. He probably, I think he wrote that song. Well, I, he probably did. You know, that, that part, that, that, that bridge part is, is from the yeah, yeah, yeah's. I mean, just like a complete rip. I don't know how they didn't get sued over that, but awesome. Seeing him in good for 20, your cousin, 20, man. 20 years, but I'll ask him, but like, you know, he was the first kind of like rock and roll influence on me. Um, you know, when I was like a really, really little kid and it was cool, you know, even before, um, he started, you know, producing and engineering, he was like a really good keyboardist and he was, um, he was sort of a keyboardist for hire and he, he would get hired out by a bunch of big rock bands. And, uh, like, I think he toured with that, remember that band Poco? I was never really into him. There's a big band called Poco. I think yeah. they had a few hits in like the seventies. He toured with them and played like Madison square garden and stuff like that. He's, he's played Madison square garden like a bunch of times. So I always kind of looked up to him because he was like, you know, a little bit older and he was a rocker and he had like, you know, uh, a band. So well, that's something we all share. I mean, Dan was extremely influenced by his older cousin, who is a great guitar player. Yeah, two of them. Two bands. And uh, my uncle was a killer drummer. And as far back as I can remember, you know, he had a giant Tama drum set with with octobons and a giant china symbol like in my grandmother's basement and every time he was out i'd go in the basement and like bang on his drums it was yeah awesome. you know and it was cool too because in my family there was no musical influence whatsoever you know my dad was sort of like you know he kind of casually listened to like neil diamond and you know stuff, stuff like that um and you know the rest of my family weren't even really that into music you know some people are like what's your favorite band they're like i don't know yeah, you know yeah. I mean? it's like okay me and you are never gonna hang out yeah, it's that's <laughs> such a foreign know. concept to me like yeah. not like pretty much all of us were at that point like we could talk about music probably endlessly it's just then you got those people that are like meh and i i can't i can't understand that yeah can never, never trust someone that meh. uh that isn't no into music. no no you just have to like kind of tip your hat to them and, and, you know, walk backwards out of the room at that point. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I didn't really have, you know, there was no instruments in the house. There was barely any records. You know, my dad had like a really tiny little record collection, um, you know, and it was mostly just like soft pop stuff and, yeah. you know, Dean Martin, like a town. Not even center. your brother, though. Your brother's a couple of years older than you. He was like prime in the 70s to be like that record jockey record dude. You know, later on, he kind of got into like uh, Ozzy and ACDC and stuff. But I was already full on into music by the time he got like, I don't know how it happened. But when I was a little kid, I just became obsessed with music. I call it a past life thing. It must have been a past life thing because I remember being like 
four or five or six and just being obsessed with music. I remember, you know, one time my parents, um, the very first vacation that we ever went on as a family, when I was like a tiny kid, I must've been five or six. And we stayed at some hotel and at the hotel, they had an arcade. So my dad gave me and my brother just like a pocket full of quarters each, you know, go out to the arcade, just, you know, spend some time down there or whatever. And so my brother went down, he's playing pinball and, you know, stuff like, you know, it was basically just pinball back then. Right, yeah, yeah. And I took all my quarters and I went to the jukebox and I spent all my, I didn't even play any pinball. Can you imagine like a six-year-old kid isn't playing pinball? Because I'm just feeding the quarters into the jukebox like all That's day long. Awesome. I'm playing like Fleetwood Mac. I remember the best thing I listened to this. They had one single that I listened to over and over again. It was Kiss. Um, Mr. Speed backed with hard luck woman. And man, I listened to Mr. Speed. I probably I listened to that. You know, you put a quarter and you get to hear two songs. So I would just listen to Mr. Speed, hard luck woman, Mr. Speed, hard luck woman. I, you know, I probably spent like five bucks just on that one single. And that was what, where, when I first kind of fell in love with kiss and, um, you know, as most kids you now that were growing up back then, you know, we were just obsessed with kiss. Yeah. And that was like my first foray into like rock music was Kiss. Yeah. Same here. Same here, man. It was my the um, first vinyl I ever bought. Yep. Same here. Yeah, I had first, Kiss Alive 2 was the first. Same. Kiss Alive 2 was that, also mine. The first record that I ever bought wasn't even a record. It was an eight track tape. I had one of those. I remember for my, uh, uh, for my birthday, my dad bought me one of those. They were called Dynamites. They were an eight-track tape, and you would click to the next section. Remember, eight-track yep. tapes had four sections, mm -hmm. and it looked like a detonator for dynamite, like it had the handle, and you would push it down, and it would it would put it to the next section. And remember, eight-track tapes they were so budget, they would put it into the next section. They would split up the song. Yeah. So the song would go like halfway, and then it would stop, and it would click over to the next section. It took like you know fifteen seconds, and then you hear the rest of the song. I was like. It was so low budget, but I had that. And then, so the first record I actually bought, like that was part of my collection was Kiss Alive One. Yeah. And I had it on, uh, had it on. Oh, you are older. Yeah. <laughs> and man, what a record. Oh, damn. I just listened to that over and over and over so and good. over. And over. I mean, those riffs, those Kiss riffs, they can't be denied, man. They were great songwriters. Ace Fraley, those solos. Yeah. It's powerful Absolutely. stuff. It's funny. It took so many years for me to figure out because I was never into like Zeppelin uh, until I got older. And then you listen back and you're like, holy shit, Ace Frehley just ripped off Jimmy Page left and right. But he did it in a new way. And at that point, it was, uh, you know, yeah. it was what, what drove us as well. Did Jimmy Page have freaking spaceman makeup and did bombs come out of his guitar and smoke? No, no. Nope. I'll take Ace Fraley over Jimmy Page any, any day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, at what point do you convince Mister P to to buy you your first guitar? Um, well, you know, it was obvious from a young age when nobody else in my family is into music. I'm just obsessed with music, and I'm begging my dad, you know, please buy me this record. Um. It was mostly like Kiss records, but you know, I would I would buy other records too, like mostly like rock records, like Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones or something like that. But I just loved it. I don't know where it came from, 
And so the whole family know this kid is just nuts over like rock music. Um, and then at an early age, I got into, I got into punk really early. You know, I started getting into like new wave stuff when I was like 11, like, you know, B-52s and the Knack. I love that band, the Knack, you know, they were, you know, popular. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was very, it was a very fast graduation from like Blondie, B-52s, the Knack into straight up punk. It was like six months of new wave. That was my, you know, um, gateway drug <laughs> from Kiss. And then I was just listening to, you know, punk. And uh, I was super inspired by the Ramones. I, you know, I, I, I've told this story before, but, um, you know, I wanted to learn how to play guitar because like I said, I saw Kiss and I saw Ace Frehley and I was just so taken by it that I wanted to do it myself. I had it in my mind when I was 10 years old, I want to play guitar. And not only that, I want to play a Les Paul, just like Ace Frehley. So um, when I was probably like 14, I, there was one of our neighbors, um, was a guy that used to give guitar lessons and I begged my dad, I was like, dad, look for my birthday, don't give me presents. Just give me like a bunch of guitar lessons. Like I really want to learn how to play guitar. And so I went there and he said, what kind of guitar do you want to play? Do you want to play acoustic or electric? And I was like, duh, electric. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he says, do you, he said, did you have a, do you have a guitar? I didn't even have a guitar. Like I just had this kind of desire to take lessons and I bugged my dad. Um, and so he had a really crappy old acoustic guitar. Like he had a, you know, this guy had a million guitars like laying around. He was like a muso guy. And he said, and you know, he, he's a guy from the neighborhood. Like it was a really tight neighborhood. We knew all the neighbors, you know, we kind of grew up together. So he was like, okay, I'll let you borrow one of my guitars. And he just, you know, basically gave me his worst guitar. I forget what it was, but it was some kind of, you know, crappy acoustic guitar. And I remember being super dejected by it because I had zero interest in playing an acoustic guitar. (laughs) I was like, F an acoustic guitar. I want to rock. Like, I want to rock loud. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't want to play, I don't even want to play Stairway to Heaven. Like, you know, I want to play God of Thunder. So (laughs) I started out learning on that crappy acoustic and I wasn't really into it. And I remember uh, my guitar teacher said, if you were going to play an electric guitar, what kind of electric guitar do you like? And I said, I like the electric guitar like the guy in kiss you know ace fraley and kiss and it was one of those things like you ever i do this with my kids sometimes like sometimes my i'll be walking around with my daughter and she'll look in a window at something she'll be like oh i really like those shoes or whatever and i'll make a little mental note and then four months later at christmas i'll go back and i'll buy her those shoes so it was literally like it was it was either like i think it was i, I think i got the lessons for christmas um, and then my birthday was was in February. So he had asked me when I first started taking lessons and he must have told my dad. And he uh, and then for my birthday, he um, he got me a knockoff Les Paul. And I remember like there was this big box and 
I had no idea it was in a big box. You can imagine a little kid, like you're just present in the huge box. I ripped it open. And man, even to like, it was in a big square box. I had no clue. And I lifted it up and there was like this, it looked like a Les Paul, it looked exactly like a Les Paul. Um, and man, there, there's, there's a picture of me. My dad has a picture of like, it was in the cardboard and I picked it up like it was the Holy Grail. <laughs> and my dad kind of caught like in a picture. I wish I still had that picture of me just like with this look of like awe on my face holding this Les Paul knockoff. Um, it was a uh, it was a company called Arita. It was like a Japanese knock. It was this band from it was this company from Japan that made like knockoffs of all American guitars. But it looked so cool. I picked it up. And I was like, "Wow, my own electric guitar!" So uh, yeah, that was like that. That was my first kind of real instrument when I had that Les Paul knockoff. It actually sounded pretty. It sounded good. I use that thing in youth today. I was just gonna say I, I didn't want to skip ahead too far, but the the black Les Paul that launched hundreds of straight edge kids to go buy black Les Pauls wasn't a Les Paul. Well, I did buy a black Les Paul, but that after, the early that. one was the, the, the early one wasn't was a knockoff because it, there's a bunch of older pictures of you where people clued into the I didn't even I never noticed it. Uh, it was actually Ed McCurdy that clued me into it. He was like, what is this? Do you know what this is? Because that's not a Les Paul. And it was a yeah. picture of you playing that guitar in Youth it Today. Was, it was an Arita. <laughs> that's amazing. So so this was, um, so um, Stephen Miller, Unbroken, uh, Heath Saraceno from Midtown, lots of friends who listened to the podcast. This was the one thing they wanted to know. What knockoff Les Paul did Porcel play early on in Youth of Today? So we we finally breaking news. You heard it here first. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name. Um, and I looked at uh, I, there was one show from the Anthrax. It was Youth of Today's second show. Um, and you can clearly see that it says Arita on the headstock. That's um, so rad. That's amazing. But, those those Japanese Les Paul copies. So many of them are just bulletproof. They play, I would, as much as it pains me to say this, as many Gibsons have I played and I've owned, There's, there hasn't been one of those decent knockoffs that didn't play as good or better than every Gibson I've picked up. Man, and, like the Grecos and... Uh, yeah, so many of those Japanese yeah. copies are such you know, good guitars. You know, that, and that was back in the day you know, before you had like cheap guitars, you know what I mean? It was before, you know, Mexico guitars, you know, with, you know, crappy yeah, wood yeah. and stuff. You know, this was just a Japanese company that wanted to make quality guitars and they wanted to sell them. So they kind of just ripped off American guitars and you could probably get yeah. away with it back then with inter international wall. But, you know, they were a legit guitar company. That guitar sounded really good. I'm not, yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I had uh, an Ibanez Les Paul um, that I got when I was on tour with, was it Sam I am, Dan? I think I Sam picked I it up. Or on, you, oh, on shift. It was around, it was in that one or two year period. Yeah, I, I picked it up in Memphis in some like little guitar shop. And I saw an Ibanez Les Paul pre-lawsuit. You know, they were snapping headstocks off at the docks for anyone listening that doesn't know the story. You know, they had caught this container and 
sooner or later they would they stopped allowing these uh, these Gibson knockoffs in the U.S. and they're really sought after. I, I belong to a bunch of uh, you know Facebook forums of like Japanese lawsuit guitars. It's amazing some of the uh, uh, of, of course of course you are of course you are <laughs> a nerd little, uh, alert. A little fun fact. Uh, it's just something I heard just recently. Um, and apparently it's verified and true. But what we always call like, you know, the lawsuit era and the lawsuit guitars. Apparently Ibanez were the only people that got any paperwork and they never got it was never a lawsuit. It was just a cease and desist. And it's turned into <laughs> the lawsuit era, the lawsuit guitars. I found that really interesting. Wow. That they were just like yeah, cease and desist, and they were like, "Okay, cool, yeah, we made our money." Apparently, Greco was still making them into the '90s, and like Firebirds, and like real, I mean, just awesome stuff. If you ever get a chance to go down a Greco rabbit hole, you'll you'll be yeah. amazed. That Greco and wow. Takai, those two yeah, were Takai, fantastic. Takai did some good ones. Yeah, I mean, I used that guitar for you know all my early bands. It was so funny because I got that guitar. I think I was like fourteen. And, uh, you know, I always tell that story about I learned bar chords. I learned a few Ramon songs and I was like, that's it. I can play guitar. <laughs> you know, and I love the Ramones, too. You know, the great thing about punk was, you know, I'm a 14 year old kid, you know, who's obsessed with music and I want to be in a band. But, you know, the music at that time, like Led Zeppelin, you know, uh, 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 yes, Rush. I'm, you know, even if I practiced every day, I'm five, ten years away from being able to, you know, play like that. <laughs> and it's super disheartening. Like I yeah. felt empowered. Like I want to do a band now. And you know, when I heard the Ramones, it was so liberating because they were so good. The music was so catchy. I like them better than Rush or Yes or or any of those bands. I literally legit thought that, you know, those songs were as good as any other songs. Yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, the music was very simple and stripped down and powerful. And I figured out after taking, you know, lessons for just like a few months, I could play every single Ramon song. And I was like, that's it. Yeah. Now I can start my music career. And I'm really in debt to the Ramones because, you know, they probably launched you know, thousands of great bands, you know, because they sure. just let, let it be known that you don't have to be some virtuoso. You don't have to be uh, Jimmy page to be able to play great music. And it was a real kind of freeing thing. So I was only taking lessons. And, you know, as soon as I got that guitar, it was probably a month or two before I started my first band. Mm, nice. And, um, it was a band with my, you know, we had a real, like I said, we, we grew up in a neighborhood. People don't talk to each other anymore. <laughs> Social media, all this bullshit. People are so disconnected. Our neighborhood, we were like all, everybody in the neighborhood was friends. You know what I mean? I knew every, everybody down the block, this guy down the block. And it didn't matter. The 18-year-old kids, the 16-year-old kids, the 8-year-old kids, we all hung out in a big pack. We were like a neighborhood. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there was a couple of other kids in the neighborhood. One kid played drums. Another kid played guitar, but he had a bass also. He was like a rich kid and he had you know, a whole bunch of guitars and basses that his parents bought him. So we're like, let's start a, let's start a band. And uh, we just did all cover songs. But, you know, not, those guys weren't into punk, but they quickly found out that punk songs were easier to play. Yeah. 
so we would play like clash songs and we played some uh elvis costello songs really bad like blondie songs really bad and it was funny too because we would have these concerts for the neighborhood and my next door neighbor he had the first garage door with the electric garage door opener and we were just like in <laughs> awe of it like wow it opens itself so we thought we were going to be like Kiss. We would get in his garage and then we'd press the button and we'd invite the whole neighborhood. There would be tons of kids. You know, there'd be 40 kids awesome. outside of, you know, in the driveway and it would come up and, we'd, and we would start playing. We had crappy amps, you know, some, you know, drum set. And we would, we would switch instruments. We'd play a song and we'd switch instruments. So I didn't know how to play drums at all, but on some songs I would, I would play drums. And it was fun. You know what I mean? It was fun. And little did you know you'd be playing to 40 kids for like the next 10 years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still playing to 40 kids sometimes. So, um, but, but, you know, it was really cool. It was fun. We were bored. You know, the great thing about like kids aren't bored. Kids have no downtime. They start to get bored right on their phone, right on their yeah. iPad, playing games, going on social media. Being bored is one of the greatest uh, uh, impetuses for creativity. You know, we were bored, so we started a band. We and we played shows, and we learned songs, and it, you know, the neighborhood kids came to see us play, and um, it was really, really cool. And you know, uh, and, and I really, you know, I got the bug for playing in front of other people. You know, even if you're just playing yeah. to kids in your neighborhood, you know, you play a song, and you're kind of like struggling your way through a song and at the end everybody kind of claps for you there's something really rewarding about that you know i've sat in my room i practiced me and these other guys got together for hours on end after school we tried our best to learn these songs now we're playing it people are appreciating it kids are clapping for us it was magical you know yeah. 14 years old it was you know that magic was being revealed to me mm. and even though we probably sucked i wish i had a video of it um, that was my first band it was just like, a, I don't even think we had a name. It was just like a garage band, you know, for, hey. for our neighborhood. Um, and after that, I started my first like legit band, which was the Young Republicans. You know, that's when I got into like junior high school. Right. Um, and I was still playing that, that Aria guitar. So I think what my were you playing for an amp? Uh I had a really, really, really crappy practice amp. I can't even remember the name. It, I'm sure it wasn't a name brand. Um, our bass player had one of those pig nose amps. Remember the pig nose, those little yeah, tiny sure. amps? And he used to play bass out of that pig nose. I mean, we had like tiny amps. And we had this drummer from school that was in like, you know, jazz band at school. He didn't even like punk, but we were just friends with him. And we kind of twisted his arm to, you know, play with us. Uh, and you know, my amp, it had a gain on it, but you know, it was terrible. You know, it sounded like you know, it wasn't even really distorted. And so my first distortion box I had was just some kind of like, uh, we had one music store, um, that was in the town over next to me. It was where those guys from bold grew up. Um, K-Town, you know, K-Town is Katona. They had one music store there. That was it. That was it. Like, unless you want to go to a music store, you had to go to like the city or something like that. Um, and they had some kind of like no name, no brand, really big white distortion box. 
So I remember I saved up money from my paper route and I bought that distortion box and it was cheap. I mean, it was probably like 15 bucks or something like that. And uh, that was my first, that was my first kind of um, experimentation with like tone. Like, oh, wow. Now I have this distortion box and I can put my amp gain all the way. And then I can put this distortion box up all the way. And it kind of sounds a little like the circle jerks. And I immediately, like awesome. with that distortion box, my game went up. Like, you know, the bar <laughs> went up for as just far as sound went. And I remember just being really, really, really stoked on that distortion box. Um, and then I had that. And then we started, we actually started becoming like a, a, a more real band. Like we, we got our singer, we got a different singer. And we actually started playing shows. And so I was like, man, I'm not satisfied with this, this distortion box. So my next kind of real distortion box I got was that MXR distortion box, that, that, that first one that came out that was yep. kind of small. Yeah. Like that first distortion box I had was like huge. It was like a brick. <laughs> and then I got that little MXR one. But man, oh man, the distortion was so much better. You know, it didn't sound yeah. like a bunch of bees buzzing, but it actually yeah. had that kind of, those, those distortion boxes were great. Yeah. It had like a kind of like rich kind it of deep, a deep, a deep tone to it. Exactly. It had like, the other thing was just all yeah. high end scratchy sounded like a bunch of, you know, literally like a bunch of buzzing bees, yeah. but that MXR one that had like, uh, it had like a whole spectrum you know, from the highs to the lows. And I was like, when I got that, I was like, now I'm really up in my game. Like <laughs> now I sound like Black Flag. <laughs> um, I remember great. really being really being stoked with that. I still had a I still had a small. Um, I think I got a bigger practice amp at that point, but you know not any kind of great amp. But we used to play shows, and you know I had, you know we used to gig around like that. We played the Anthrax a bunch of times with that NXR through my practice amp and we kind of made it work and it was, it was fun. And you know, what was really cool. Here we are, we're a bunch of 15 year old kids. We're writing our own songs. We had all original material. We, 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 at that same music store in Katona, they actually had a recording studio. And we went in there, we saved all our money from our jobs. We went in there where we recorded the demo. That demo actually got released as a single um, a few years ago. Uh, God, what's the name of the record label? Guy's going to kill me. I just saw him. <laughs> anyway, you know, the Young Republicans it actually got released as a single, you know, decades later. And I remember when I he realized when that. He, it's awesome. When he re-released it and he sent me a copy and I listened to it, I remember like, this is so cool. You know, I, I was 15 years old. Like, I remember, like, you know, when my kids were 15, they seemed like little tiny kids. Mm -hmm. And we wrote a whole set of original music. And I remember even, you know, uh, even before we started playing the Anthrax, we would get any gig we'd get. We would play parties. And our first real gig was we played before the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the <laughs> local movie theater. Oh, that's so cool. That was like our big gig. I was like our big gig and it was, and we played it. Everybody in school made fun of us, told us how much we sucked because it was all punk and nobody even knew what punk was, but I was stoked. 
here we are, you know, bunch of little kids writing, recording, playing our own music, gigging. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, it was it, it was a really cool experience. What what fifteen year old kids do that now? They're too freaking busy on their Instagram or whatever. Boredom <laughs> boredom was great for us. Boredom really spurred a lot of creative endeavor. You know, for kids back then, I, I wish sure. kids were more bored. For sure, you know what we? Uh, I don't know about Dan, but we we force boredom on our ten year old. When we we notice he starts to get a bit of an attitude when he's when he's on his electronics a little too much and like that's it they get yanked immediately. My wife is like the warden, and as soon as she pulls it, he goes through an hour of almost um, decompression. Right, he, he's still aggro, and then suddenly he's drawing. He's you taking pipe cleaners and making monsters out of them. He's like suddenly the creative, the creativity in him just like blows up. So sometimes we got to like force him out of that digital space. And then suddenly, you know, you start to see the talents coming out, which is, which is yeah. rad. I feel super blessed to grow up in an era where we didn't have a damn thing to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Same here. Yep. Uh, and luckily, luckily, I channeled that all into music at a, at a super young age. Yeah. And, and, you know, the young Republicans were really cool. We, you know, when we first started playing the anthrax, that's how I met Ray, Ray Capo. Uh, and I met him when I was 16. And then when I was 17, violent children were also playing, you know, young Republicans would play a bunch of shows with violent children. And um, when I turned 17, after I'd known Ray for a year, there they had two guitar players and they both went to college and so they asked me to play in violent children and that was like a big step up because they had a record out and you know they were like a way more serious band than, than my band so i was really happy to uh uh to join young republicans and so i played in young republicans for about like eight months and man we played a ton of shows in that eight months we were playing like every you know two weeks you know uh, VFW halls and you know we played a bunch of shows with, like Gnostic Front um, you know, we played some big shows it was really really cool we played seven seconds you know we we were so stoked when Walk Together Rock Together came out and Kevin Seconds is wearing uh, the Violent Children shirt that we gave him on the back of the record <laughs> we were just yep, like awesome. oh my god our little tiny band has made it you know because Kevin Seconds is wearing our it's so funny because now, you know, we're still, even though you guys are in your fifties and I'm only slightly behind you by a year. Um, I was nerding out with Sammy. Yeah. I'm texting Sammy going, how amazing is it to be playing drums for seven seconds right now? Yeah. That's like, pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, it's just, it's surreal. You know, yeah. how cool is that? You grow up like idolizing a band and suddenly you're playing with them. I mean, what to speak of, it's more than just idolizing a band. It's more than like, you know, and if you're not into punk or hardcore, this won't really hit home for you. But you two guys, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's more than like, oh, I really like Led Zeppelin. Oh, ACDC were my favorite band. Seven Seconds were one of those bands that changed our lives. Yes. You know, they came in with this breath of fresh air and positivity into this like crazy music scene. And literally they took my life, which was going this way and they made it go this way. 
Yeah. It's be it's beyond that we just like the band. Yeah. That band literally shaped who we became. So like, you know, now that Sammy's playing with him, it's like, well, that is it's extra yeah. cool. And it was normal, pretty mind blowing to see. You know, civilians won't understand that. But us three, we, we get it. We, we get how yeah. special it is that Sammy's playing for seven seconds. I said on the last the last episode that we recorded, uh, I went to see them. I was supposed to see them here in, in Jersey and the show got canceled because of uh uh, Keith got COVID. So mm-hmm. they did a pre uh, uh, impromptu show in Philadelphia. So I drove out to Philly to go see it and it was negative approach in seven seconds and negative approach. I got to see, I've seen them a couple times in the last, you know, 10 years, but seven seconds I haven't seen since possibly the nineties. And I saw them a lot in the nineties, but I haven't mm-hmm. seen them since, but they played maybe an hour and 20 minutes it was a really long set and they played every single thing i could have asked for and they sounded amazing and to have that experience at this point in their career was so awesome to see them killing it and sounding phenomenal i I haven't behind a drum kit the whole time yeah i haven't seen them with sammy but i can imagine sammy's probably making that band sound really good sammy's a great drummer Yeah. yeah Um, you know, they they're playing in Vermont. Solid. They're playing in Vermont, not very far from you next week. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking about taking the ride out. Actually, it's Sunday. It's right after Dan's big 50th birthday party. And I'm thinking like Sunday night, maybe taking a ride up to, uh, to go. Man, see I'll be on a plane for Tuscany. Uh, that's right. You're going. It's, uh, Wait, oh, because you're teaching for a week, and then I guess the the other guys are meeting you out there, right? Uh, yeah, we're we're doing a, a yoga retreat in Tuscany for a week, and then we're going, then we're doing that tour yeah. in Europe. Youth of Today is playing in, in Europe, so surreal. So- Youth of Today, we're still playing, <laughs> we're still freaking playing. From those days when I had that Arita guitar, <laughs> we're still doing. Dude, that's great. So I want to fast forward. We're talking about Youth of Today. Let's yeah, might as well talk- just jump right in. <laughs> all right that? you want you want to talk tone since this yeah. is about tone yes um you know when i was in violent children and like young republicans tone didn't really matter like i wasn't really thinking about tone too much you know it was almost just like whatever you can scrape up that's what you're going to use yeah, sure and um you know i'm sure we didn't sound great i didn't really have great amps or anything and i remember when Youth of Today was going to move to New York City and when we really wanted to make a go of the band, like, you know, Youth of Today started and it was just kind of a strange explosion that the band became really popular really quickly. Like, you know, the band, we weren't even a band together. for We weren't even a band for six months. We already played with Agnostic Front, you know, seven seconds. We, did, we were a band for like five months when we did that West coast tour with seven seconds, I mean, it's, it was, it was surreal. And Kevin played drums, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kevin played drums and, and, you know, he was going to put out a record and everything. So I was like, you know, by, by that next summer when I was, um, I was 18. No, I was, I was 19. I was 19. I started the band when I was 18. And then by the next summer, we were going to move to New York City and we were like, we were going to do the band like full time. And I was like, you know what? I got to get serious about gear. 
I can't play this Les Paul knockoff anymore with this little crazy, you know, crappy amp. And I tell you, I really, I actually, that whole youth today sound like that break down the wall sound, like that youth crew guitar sound that became kind of like a staple for a whole genre of subgenre of hardcore. I really just kind of lucked into it because I was like, okay, I got to get a serious amp. I didn't really know too much about amps. It wasn't a time where you had Google and you could just Google amps and read reviews and stuff like that. Like there wasn't Watch YouTube any, videos. Yeah. There wasn't even any like gear magazines. You know what I mean? You know, it was just kind of like a shot in the dark. So, and, and even back then, not of a lot of, it wasn't like, you know, bands would roll into town like seven seconds and it wasn't, there wasn't like a standard amp, even like bigger bands had crappy equipment or just stuff they kind of like cobbled together, big hardcore bands. So it, there wasn't like a standard thing. So I remember I was looking through, there was basically before Craigslist, there was this thing called the penny saver. Do you remember mm -hmm. the penny saver? Yep. Yeah, of it was course. like Craigslist listings, like apartments, you know, anything that you wanted, you know, musical instruments, cars, it was all in like an actual like little magazine that used to come out like every month or something like that. And so we had the penny saver and I looked up musical instruments and I was flipping through looking for amps. And I saw this listing that said uh, Marshall amp. Marshall amp and 412 cabinet. And I was like, oh, wow, that's what I want. I want the head and the separate cabinet because I had seen all the bigger bands use that, use that stuff. Right. And I went there and it was some rocker kid. You know, I lived in Westchester, a bunch of freaking rich kids. You know, so it was some rocker kid whose parents bought him like a top of the line Marshall half stack that he probably used three times. And then he's going off to college. So it was practically an unused Marshall JCM 800, like brand new head, you know, brand new tubes and everything. And I forget how much I bought it for a few hundred bucks. Like the kid practically gave it to me. Yeah. And um, so I got that. And I tell you, you know, even today, but especially back Amps sounded way like you could buy. I remember I used to go to Sam Ash in New York City, and like if you wanted to buy a Marshall amp, you'd play ten of them because each one sounded a little bit different. It wasn't like this kind of like factory made stuff. A lot of that stuff was like handmade, you know, um, by actual people, not machines. And so each one had a little bit of a different nuance to it. And somehow or other, I lucked into this Marshall that was just like it had that kind of youth to today sound. And I went down to San, and I, you know, I I worked all I worked all summer long, landscaping at a condominium, like pushing a freaking lawnmower for eight hours a day in a blazing sun, you know, to, you know, basically just to get money to buy an amp and a guitar. And I remember I went into Sam Ash and I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy a real Les Paul. And I walked in and there was only one black one. And I picked, and it was used. I think it was like, it was pretty cheap too. I think I bought it for 500 bucks or something, but it was a black Les Paul standard. And that was the youth of today, black Les Paul that everybody yeah, kind of yeah. knows, you know, that was on the, all, all the records. And I just like, I knew exactly what I wanted. 
I wanted a black Les Paul. And I walked in there. There it was on the wall. I picked it up, played it. Sounded great. Thank you. Here's 500 bucks. And I took that thing home and I plugged it into that Marshall. Even without a distortion box, I would just crank up the gain and crank up the volume. And, you know, back then, you know, Marshall cabinets, you know, I learned all this later, you know, just kind of like, you know, when I got into like gear. But, you know, those cabinets, they're made to break up. You know, they're made to overdrive, even the cabinets themselves. You know, later on, I got into, you know, I really got into Mesa Boogies and it's a totally different thing. Like those cabinets are actually very clean sounding. Mm -hmm. They're not, the distortion is coming from the amp. It's not coming from the cabinet breaking up, but that's not how Marshalls are. That's why if you take a dual rectifier and you put it on top of Marshall cabinet, it just sounds like mud. You know what I mean? If you take a Marshall amp, you put it on a Mesa Boogie cabinet, it sounds too clean. Yeah, it's tight. Um. But those amps back then, you know, I took that guitar, I brought it home, I plugged it into that Marshall JCM 800 with that gain cranked all the way up, and that was it. It sounded great. I lucked into it. And I tell you, you know, when you're in a band, I don't care how good of a player you are, I don't care how good your singer is, a band, what makes a band great is the chemistry between those four people that get in that garage and plug in their instruments and the charisma and the way that they play together and the way that they bond together, like all great bands, there's a chemistry between those four people. Tone is the same thing. Tone is the same thing. It's the chemistry between your particular guitar, your particular head, you know, your particular, what if you're using a box or whatever, and for some reason, the chemistry of that Les Paul in that Marshall head with the Marshall cabinet, it sounded like youth of today. It was that, it was that youth crew sound. It was like a very bright kind of Marshally sound. It wasn't like crazy overdriven, like metal. You know what I mean? It was just enough overdriven that, you know, it sounded like hardcore. And it kind of became a blueprint, you know, for all these other bands that, you know, straight edge bands that kind of came into it. I Absolutely. really had nothing to do with it. I literally stumbled upon it, but there was something about that chemistry of that black Les Paul and that, and that Marshall. Yeah. And it's one That's, of those things where, you know, you, you stumbled upon your Les Paul and Marshall sound, Like it's, it's a classic sound but in a hundred different ways, there's a hundred different guys playing Les Paul Marshall that all sound phenomenal, but all sound different to your yeah. point about each, each head having its own uh, tone, especially that combination. I've always found that with. Yeah. yeah I mean, just did. compare Purcell, Ace Freely, uh, John Frusciante, same gear. Right, just just yeah. those three triangulating completely different tones, yeah. and they all work. Slash, slash is using Les Paul and Marshall. You know, yeah. for some reason, you know, there's a chemistry. It's the instrument, it's the player, it's the particular amp. Because you could buy two JCM 800s, and they're going to sound completely different. It was a fact that and Les Pauls. I remember exactly. a point when you bought. Would you get your white Les Paul custom, and you played yeah. like a dozen of them until you found? Oh one yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's so true. You're like, it, it's not something stock where you're just going to walk in and you're just going to get that less Paul. It's going to sound great. 
Yeah. Never, ever, ever do that. Play every single one in that freaking music store. And you'll hear they they all sound different. There's there's you know, the wood is a different tree and a different cut of wood. Yeah. And um yeah, it it, it really, it really, really, really sounded great. Um and, and I really, you know, I really first started getting into like when I started like really kind of experimenting with tone, like really trying to like raise the bar a little bit was with judge, you know, because judge was, you know, for judge, we were heavier and we wanted yes. to sound heavy and we were bringing kind of like, we didn't sound metal, but we were bringing some of those elements in. Uh, no, they were bringing metal elements. It's in the intro, man. It's, it's yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, did, it didn't, you know, we don't sound like Testament or something like that. Or No, you know, no, no, but it was definitely, it was definitely coming from, I, I know I personally, I came from a place where when I was introduced to punk rock, it was metal too at the same time. I was getting into metal and punk rock at the same time. And I came up with both of those. And that was one of the things I loved about Judge was it's definitively there's definitively a metal sound in there. Yeah. Without a doubt. Well, in my well, opinion. Know, well, you know, we recorded and I loved that it. first we recorded that first single. Um, and I just used one of those one of those small amps um, that Don Fury had laying around. And I think I, I didn't have a distortion box, but I borrowed a distortion box. I'm trying to think of which one it was. It was a rat, rat pedal. And it was a rat pedal going through one of Don Peary's just amps that he had laying. It might have been a, like a small fender or something like that. But I tell you, that rat, that was a great distortion box. Like that was a heavy sounding distortion box. Yeah. And so that was another kind of thing that I, that I sort of stumbled into. It was that rat box on that New York Cruise single that gave Judge that really heavy sound. It didn't sound like you you know what I mean? It sounded heavier. And um, so when Judge first started, I remember, you know, especially when we were getting ready to, you know, record bringing it down. That was my first time when I was like, I'm in search of a tone. You know what I mean? Like, I know what I want to hear. And the youth of today, no distortion box thing. It's not cutting it. I want something that's going to be heavier and a little bit more powerful. And, you know, a little bit more sustained, you know, the youth today think I'd hit a chord and it would very quickly go into feedback because, you know, the amp is cranked up so much, but I wanted something where I would hit the chord and it would be like sustained. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a different thing that I was going for. So I had to really kind of search it out. And um, and that tone that you wanted really didn't exist in a plug and play head at that point. Not at all. Not at all. Um, so that tone actually came, you know, I, I ditched the 800 and I got a 900. You know, the 900 had more gain on it. Yeah. But, you know, the 900, even with the 900 with the gain, it sort of sounded a little like acdc acdc ish which yeah, wasn't what i was honky mid-rangey yeah so i got that 900 and but the magic ingredient for judge was when i got um 
a TC Electronics distortion box. And that distortion box was magic mm-hmm. because that rat box was very heavy. It sounded very kind of like deep and heavy, um, but it was muddy. You know what I mean? It was very kind of like muddy sounding, but that TC distortion box, man, it had that kind of deep sound, but it wasn't muddy. It was like, it was like clean, like it wasn't clean, but it was like, it sounded like a bell, you know, you would hit that chord and it wasn't like just a bunch of mud. You could hear the chord, you know what I mean? Although it was super powerful and I would crank up the amp. I'd crank up the gain on the amp. I'd crank up the gain on that TC electronics box. And that was the sound of judge. And, uh, and that's when I got the second cabinet. So that's when I was like, I got to have another cabinet for this. (laughs) And, uh, so it was a Marshall full stack with a JCM 900. And I tell you those 900 was the same thing. Like when I bought that 900, I went to the music store and I I played a million of them and I took the one that sounded the heaviest. And, yeah, it was the, it, and that was another thing. It was the chemistry. It was that, it was that distortion box. It was my Les Paul. Um, uh, and actually, you know, uh, um, towards the end too, was when, you know, when we recorded Bringing It Down, that's when I started like getting more than one guitar also. So the next guitar I got was when Alex Brown left Gorilla Biscuits uh he sold me his amp he sold me his amp and his freaking les paul that sunburst les paul he sold me his half stack and his les paul for five hundred dollars oh shit five hundred dollars for a half stack and a les paul yeah like it's it was just like whatever i'm quitting music i'm going to art school just take it you're still rocking out rest in Um, peace alex you know, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, he 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 kind of hooked me up, and that's when I had the full stack because I had that you know, I already had the youth of the half stack. And um I took that guitar and, and you know that's when I started you know learning about it wasn't just the guitar and the distortion box, but I started to learn that the pickup also <laughs> made a lot of difference, you know, because those PAF pickups they're not meant you know they're meant for like rock and roll they're meant for like you know whatever jerry you know jerry lee lewis kind of stuff you know 50s kind of rock and roll elvis presley kind of stuff it's not meant for like judge (laughs) (laughs) so i had alex browns and i ripped out the pickup and i put an emg pickup in it because everybody's talking all these emg pickups they have so much power in it and so you know i've been hearing you know these emg pickups sound really powerful and I didn't even experiment. You know, I mean, you couldn't really experiment. I just went to Sam Ash. I got a, you know, EMG pickup and I put it in that guitar. And man, oh man, that thing screamed. Those EMG pickups were freaking awesome. It was like next level, like super, like it sounded even heavier with EMG pickups in it. Yeah. So that bringing it down sound that everybody loved, that real sort of heavy, but clear sounding you know stuff that that was the combination of my black les paul with the tc distortion box and that other les paul with the uh, they, were both, they were both standards with the, with the emg in it and those two blended together 
fuck. <laughs> so is that is that what you used on bringing it down? Yeah. That's great. Is it the it was, was it the black TC box with the orange? Like it had like an orange stripe or yellow stripe across? Was no, it, black it, was, it was black and white. Black and white. Yeah, it was probably the first one that came out. They they, yeah. they might have made ones after that. I had, kind of, I had one in the mid-90s, but I don't know when it was from. But it could have been what? a different distortion, but it was like a black square with an orange stripe. Yeah, this was didn't the have one any I orange had. on it. Yeah. It was really weird. You know, I love that distortion box, and they kind of came and went. Like, you can't really find them anymore. Yeah. But, you know, back in the day, man, that thing was revolutionary. That's funny. We just, uh, I was just talking funny enough with, uh, with Steve Miller about EMGs and Les Pauls, and he had made a post about it once, and John Reese from Rocket from the Crypt chimed in, you know, because he's famous for his, that, that white Les Paul custom having the EMGs. So it's yeah. uh so when you went in for the next the last judge recording right and you guys do um forget this time, forget this time. that guitar sound and 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 i know that you, i actually when you were up here in hartford and you guys were sound checking i was like what's that chord you use and you you had showed me because dan and i we actually have a recording of that song that we did that I've, I've got to get you. Um, but that guitar tone was like next level. Actually, that guitar tone and the tone that you used on the Ray and Purcell 7-inch were very similar. Very super gainy, super metal-y. What did yeah. you do at that point? Um, it was, you know, at, at that point, I was becoming kind of like a, a, a bit of a gearhead myself. You know, uh, it was pretty much the same it was pretty much the same setup as bringing it down. It was that Les Paul. It was the two Les Pauls. Um, uh, but for that, on bringing it down, I used just the JCM 900. But on that last EP, it was the 900 and the 800. And I can't, I think I used the 800 with the EMG, 800 with the EMG Les Paul. And I used the 900 with the black. And it was that it, it was that sound between the 800 and the 900. It sounded a little bit more kind of crystal clear, you know. Yeah. And I, I was really I was happy with that for sure. That was and it was it was it was that and it was hours of turning knobs too, <laughs> like literally hours of just sitting turning knobs. And you would like turn a knob, go back in the control room, hit a chord, listen to it, go back, turn a knob. You know, you just spent you know. At that point, I was just into it. You know, it's a search for tone. Like if you're a guitar player, that's the never ending search for tone. Thank you for joining us for the first part of our interview with John Purcelli. Second part will be out very shortly and it's every bit as good as the first. Please rate, review and share the podcast with everyone you think would enjoy it. Thanks.